Linux out loud is firing up our microphones, connecting to those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banner friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we're spouting off about which CPU is in our Linux future. Let's get into episode 27. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is the person who will, despite everything, never claim he uses Arch, and the photographer extraordinaire, Wendy, and what's going on, uh, Arch user Nate. Well, I'm not an Arch user. I'm a Steam OS user, just like I wouldn't call myself a Gentoo user when I'm using Chrome OS. So you're meaning to using Chrome OS? No, I'm saying they're, they're similar. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't... I wouldn't call Chrome OS Gen 2, even if it's based on it, because with SteamOS, you don't have all the pain of Arch. It's, it's abstracted away from you. I just don't think you like the fact that you're running Arch. That was quite an interesting <laughs> conundrum that you caught him in there. Yes. <laughs> I'm not in a conundrum. I feel very confident as to where I stand. <laughs> so either way, you're either admitting you use Chrome OS, which is Gen 2, so therefore I can say, now you're a Gen 2 user. Or now you're saying you're a SteamOS user, which therefore is based on Arch, so which I can say you're an Arch user. You know, whatever makes you feel good, Matt, you could take this like whatever bunny trail that gives you your own personal victory. I'm totally cool with that. There's no bunny trail. <laughs> it's just legitimately facts all about what they're based off from. If you want to deny those facts, that's on you. <laughs> okay. All right. You know, I guess you can win this one, Matt. <laughs> I mean, I don't agree with you, but you can go ahead and win it. So while I'm busy giving Nate a hard time, Nate, what have you actually been doing on uh, Linux Saloon with the rest of the community? <laughs> well, I had a lot of fun this last week on Linux Saloon. This is what would have been broadcasted live. Broadcast, not the right term. Streamed live on the first weekend in August. But what uh, we did was we explored different multimedia applications. I often get myself like into uh, a rut with things and I find something I like and I just stick with it and I call it good. So I had the pleasure, let's say, of going through and exploring some different things on Flatpak, different multimedia applications that were actually a lot of fun to mess around with. And then some other people in the community found some really cool things and which made me very interested in trying more multimedia applications to see if they're any better than what I'm using now. So my typical, if I'm going to do a, a, like a song playlist right now for local media, multimedia, I use Amarok or VLC. VLC mostly for like homeschool stuff when I have to like put like different songs or things uh, that we do for memorizing acts and facts on VLC. And it's very easy to create playlists. I can just double click the playlist. It brings VLC up. It's really nice. And then for Amarok, it's just like, you know, whatever listening. Also, Amarok does a really great job of doing meta tag editing. What I wanted to do then for Linux Loon was explore some applications, some multimedia applications that you don't use or haven't used or anything like that. So I found some really neat ones myself. And a fun one. I'm not going to go over all of them because you can watch the episode yourself. Uh, everything is indexed so you can go through and you can, or cha has chapters so you can select whatever chapter you want. But a couple of them I thought were really interesting is Rockarola. If you want to set up like maybe like a kiosk jukebox, I imagine you could do it like a Raspberry Pi and have GPIO pin, trigger an event, whatever, like putting in a coin. Then you can have it play specific songs. Not great if you have like a thousand plus songs in your library because it'd be a lot to scroll through. It's very keyboard centric, so it's not mouse input at all but would be great for like a kiosk, some buttons, if you create like a physical jukebox, that would be really cool. Another one I thought was really neat, I didn't try it myself, but I guess Clementine and Strawberry, they're kind of the same application, which is like old Amarok. And I really like the old Amarok, maybe more than the current one. I don't know, I, I, want, to, I want to test those again. I'm going to do a follow-up on that at some point in time. 
And then another one I thought was really cool is something called Play It Slowly. So if you load a song or any audio in that really, you can adjust the speed of it and listen to it faster or slower. So if let's say you had, you know, maybe like a podcast that you downloaded, or let's say you recorded like a talk or something and you wanted to listen to it maybe quicker because of whatever reasons to kind of review it, you could use Play It Slowly very easily. Obviously you can use other things as well. You could probably use VLC for it. But the controls, like the little slider controls you had in Play It Slowly, I thought was really cool. Anyway, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was fun to just explore some different applications out there. There's a lot of multimedia apps that are available. And more than I realized, it was a good time. Which is funny because that does play into, you know, what we did just talked about is as far as discovering new apps and all that stuff. So that's always fun and interesting to see. As someone who explores music apps, oh man, do I have recommendations that you guys didn't even touch upon. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. There's a lot more out there. You only have so much time. Oh, easily. As far as the strawberry clementine thing. Clementine, from what I understand, I haven't checked, you know, GitHub or GitLab, wherever they're hosted recently, but they went the way of Banshee and just kind of, it's there, but it's not really maintained. And Strawberry kind of continued that process along. Yeah, I do feel like Strawberry seemed like it had a little more love put into it. The interface looks like a slightly more friendly, I would say Strawberry, but looks the same as Clementine, but just like with some more friendly looking feet, like, uh, buttons and such yeah like where you can place the tabs kind of on the side if you want or you can kind of mix and match and kind of customize it and it's not as uh, overwhelming so it looks like a good one to try again for sure if it's like old amarok or similar to pretty much still the drive for it a couple other ones you might want to look at nate is i believe they're on FlatHub. one is called the beat it's a really simple music player if that's mm-hmm. what you're looking for i know dan did lollipop which is i'm not a usually a gtk guy but it's probably actually one of my favorite like music apps okay another one that i believe is called yeah rock ya rock is uh one and i believe another one is called dopamine which is ironic. Kind of a funny name. For those that remember the Zoom players back in like the early 2000s, the UI is very reminiscent of the, the Zoom player kind of aesthetic. So uh, it's kind of for the that crowd. Those are some recommendations and stuff that I would try as well. They're definitely different. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be fun to play with. It was a really fun application exploration. I had a lot of fun with that. It's especially fun seeing how different apps handle like different sources of music. I know... Some handle online more than somebody trying nuclear. Yes. (laughs) They didn't have the best experience with it, not being able to detect their local music at all. Jinda had some troubles with a lot of the applications not being able to load in the library. They would either freak out or shut down or, or just wouldn't finish the process. Which I'm guessing it's because he has a lot of music and that might have been one of the issues. Yeah, I know when I try pulling in all the video game music, which is about 40 gig, like it's four, 5,000 songs. It's not like, it's a lot, but it's not like unheard of to have. And some of them just don't do anything. You get the status bar of death. We're doing stuff. But it ain't going anywhere. <laughs> I definitely feel that pain. Yeah, that's never fun when it happens. I only have a few gig of music. I don't have, I'm not sure how much I have. I haven't checked it in a while. But I didn't have any issues with any of the applications I tried. 41.6 gigabytes. That's what I have of music. Wendy, I spend a lot of time playing with multimedia applications, but it looks like you took the time to be outside for the weekend. We did. We got to be outside quite a bit this last weekend for one of my kids' birthdays. It was a ton of fun. We spent Sunday out on a reservoir, the kids playing in the water. I've got some video of Magneto on a stand-up paddleboard, and that was quite entertaining. He was disappointed that I didn't fall off the paddleboard with my rounds with it, but everybody had a lot of fun. 
the kid's birthday it was for had an absolute blast and it ended up being like a double birthday day because we couldn't actually go on the birthday to go play out on the reservoir like she wanted to. So the next day on Monday, we went out, did a little bit of fishing. When the kids got tired of fishing that morning, I loaded them up in my car, brought them back so they could go have a water balloon fight and the guys could continue catching some fish. We all had a lot of fun. I definitely got some more sunburns because, well, that's just my fantastic skin type. And now that I have been outside, played a little bit, it's time to come inside and buckle down and get some robot stuff done. I have spent my share of too much time in the sun, although I can pretty much take it most of the time. But there have been a few times this year I just didn't realize how much sun I got and I kind of paid for it a little bit later. I'm I'm a bad sick person or unwell person. (laughs) And I would say that when I have a sunburn that's really bad, I'm unwell and nobody should be around me. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've had a very severe sunburn. This really wasn't that bad. And I've learned throughout the years because I've had sunburns my entire life, how to help them heal quicker. And the key is really to keep the skin moisturized. My oldest daughter definitely got the worst burns out of anybody. And before we left the house, like everybody put on a layer of sunscreen. They knew they were going to be out in the water and we grilled on the boat. The kids probably should have put an extra layer on before going back out. But, you know, in their swimming suits, they've been, they spent a lot of time playing on the paddleboard. And so the tops of the thighs for most of the kids is what got it the worst because they were down in the water, stuff was washing off, they didn't recoat. And then that surface was in the direct plane of the sun. So my daughter had a couple days where she was walking around gingerly and I'm like, hey, every couple hours go re-lotion. Every couple hours go re-lotion. I promise It'll hurt less if there's moisture there. If there's not, it's going to get tight and hurt so much more. So she seems to be doing better. My other redhead, he can get like a little bit red and then he's pretty much, it's gone the next day. I'm a big fan of using coconut oil and aloe vera, those two in in conjunction with one another. And that seems to pretty much take care of my ailments, but I know everybody's different. And both of those work really good. I used to have an aloe vera plant and I don't anymore. I think it's one of the things I need to get on hand because I prefer using the straight aloe vera as opposed to ones in the jugs. Makes sense. Less preservatives when you get it right off the plant, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. It seems like you've had a whole bunch of not fun, Matt, not been feeling well lately. How are you doing now? I'm here. So there's that. (laughs) Yeah. Tidney's big disapproval on that one. Uh, (laughs) Oh, Oh, no. Now, what would Optimus Prime do without Megatron? That's how I feel. You, Megatron, if you disappeared, how would, what purpose would I have on Linux Out Loud? You'd have Bill. <laughs> oh, good point. <laughs> I guess Optimus Prime could do well without Megatron. <laughs> yeah, so I got sick, to say the least. Things happen. So I was out for the last uh, four or five days, so that was a whole lot of fun. And let's hope that we don't have a repeat of that anytime soon. Yeah. There's curled up in the uh, ball in my bedroom and leave me alone. I don't want anybody bothering me. I'm sick. I'm like Nate. I'm the worst sick person as far as don't even (laughs) 
bother me. So I totally get where Nate's coming from with that. Yeah, I'm even like, a don't bring me chicken soup. Don't check on me. Don't do anything. Just let me be a bear in the cave. I'll lick my own wounds. Leave me alone. Yeah, it's one of those, I'll get better on my own. Go away. <laughs> yeah. He got sick because he's been going nonstop at work. Well, I know, but he's such an angry person. I figured that even sickness would stay away from him. I can agree with you guys <laughs> on don't look at me, don't touch me, just leave me alone if I have a migraine because that is without a doubt the case. It's been a while since I've had one that bad, but because every sense hurts, you talking to me or anything like that just makes it so much worse. So I completely understand that. The downside of being super, super sick, and I haven't been like laid up in bed for days in a long time. It's been probably six-ish years or not. I had a really bad strep throat. The worst thing about that is when I finally emerge and realize that my house is an absolute horrible disaster. And so not only am I still recovering from not feeling very good, I now have to remind kids of all the chores they should have been doing while mom was in bed, curled up, not moving. Yeah, I think kids probably are the least to understand how miserable you are. I mean, I think they would understand because it seems like kids get sick kind of, I don't want to say often, but they're more accustomed to it since they have less developed immune systems. But you know, telling them to go away, I, I kind of feel bad, but I don't when I say that. Leave me alone. I know I've had that conversation with my children when it's been a late night editing and the show gets out on time, but I go to bed at like super early in the a.m. And that's when my kids want to come in at 530 in the morning and hold a conversation with me. Please don't. It's exactly. safer for both of us. <laughs> this episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by Digital Ocean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. The sickness decided to choose me to be the one to get infected. The question is, what are we looking at for CPUs in the future of Linux and the desktop and everything else? Because this question seems to be coming up more and more with things like the Apple Silicon and all the other ARM-based processors that are coming around, especially with uh, Linus Torvalds using an M2 Mac to recently push up the Linux kernel. So there's been a big question about whether or not what the future of 
processors are going to be. I'm more curious about what the future of processors are going to be for like Linux specifically. What do you guys think? Me, I know you. this is more up your alley for his general interest because, you know, hardware. I think Wendy's probably more of a hardware addict than I am. I happen to like different pieces of hardware. It's almost like Wendy's on a show called Hardware Addicts. Me? Yes, I absolutely am on a show called Hardware Addicts. And if you want to listen to another fantastic show, go check out Hardware Addicts. This is true. (laughs) Segway to plug. can't get enough wendy oh i'm pretty sure there are plenty of people that get way too much they're like oh my gosh shut that lady off (laughs) i would never say that you know for for my own personal (laughs) health (laughs) on a side note sinister wendy (laughs) hashtag seems to be picking up on mastodon with some of the listeners so i guess that is a thing now that's fun it was always a thing (laughs) it was always a thing just without the hashtag oh i see Mm mmm When it comes to CPUs, I have to say my first love is AMD. And right now, that's because at least in recent years, you've been able to get so much more power for better cost per performance as compared to Intel. I do have interest in the ARM machines. The biggest downside or the thing that I worry about with them, and I think we've talked about this on Hardware Addicts too, is that each chip seems to be so specific with its drivers and the like that it's harder and harder to run custom software on those devices And while I do love hardware, hardware is useless if you're not running usable software on that. And I have played, as we've talked about, with roots and ROMs on phones, and certain devices are easier to do that with, whether the code's out there, hackers been able to find things. I love my desktop. I love my x86 processor that's in the desktop. I'm not opposed to ARM, but I have concerns with it, and I'm really not seeing in a lot of cases the concerns I have being resolved on the market for the most part, mass device-wide. I totally agree. I think that ARM is a great idea. It does a lot of things well, like it's a lower cost, minimal power consumption, lower heat generation than some others. So it's great for light and portable or battery-powered devices. That's all fine and dandy, but the problem that I have with ARM is that there isn't really an ARM architecture to target. As you would have like with x86, AMD and Intel's core architecture that they use, you have a target that's easy to build against. You don't need a special build of Linux to run on one version of CPU to another as long as they're following the x86 standard. I view ARM right now, I mean, I think it's, it's gotten more mature, but I, I still think it's a very immature platform that where you can't really target it exactly because of the variations from chip to chip. But I think it's getting better. I mean, you have a few targets now that you can actually go for. You can build for the Raspberry Pi. You can build for the Pine 64. You can build for the BeagleBones by, I think, Texas Instruments. I guess there's the um, Max Silicon. That's something now to target. But they don't really have it, so it's easy to target at this point. I know there's work being done on it, but they specifically make it or use ARM in such a way that it makes it difficult to put something else put something custom on there. And as such that until that gets fixed with ARM, until there's some sort of a, like an actual standard, I'm really not interested in ARM for anything serious. You know, appliance stuff, it's fine. Specialized things, it's fine. You know, like setting up a Raspberry Pi with digital signage or whatever. I think that's great. But like for like a regular computer to use, I mean, the Pi 4 is pretty great, actually. 
but other things not so much i mean as far as like bones go it just seems like so much work there's so much technical liability that goes with arm that i just don't see how it's sustainable long term in its current state for me right now i'm in the x86 64 yeah you know whatever denomination they're using for amd intel stuff i'm gonna like wendy i'm gonna be the amd fanboy just because price performance as far as most compatibility with applications and regardless of OS and all that kind of stuff is going to be x86. Barring that, as far as ARM is, like you mentioned, I like the concept, like in concept, it's cool, but it's very cool in the fact that it's appliance, like it's the appliance mentality to that, which also creates the issue of what we get with phones where it's like, oh, well, this driver's not available or we have, you know, 7,000 different workarounds to try to make it work or insert thing here. So I'm with you when it comes to the ARM stuff and then not even getting into stuff not being optimized for uh, (laughs) people trying to run a Linux desktop on our with arm packaging and all the other stuff some stuff just doesn't work it's not a stellar experience (laughs) let's just put it that way um the pie is probably the exception but that's because like you mentioned it's a standardized thing it's like here's other than the ram and maybe a few little different pieces on the board it's generically the same. Here's the instruction set. Here's top to bottom what it is. And that's not something ARM does very well. And it's not like ARM hasn't been around long enough in order to clean up some of that, whether it's some of the compatibility issues, whether it is a standardization where it can be easily targeted. It seems like the industry is wanting to keep it segregated in those different ways. And I think we have a general consensus that we really like some of the advantages of ARM. And definitely when it comes to power consumption, it's probably one of the best processors for that kind of use case. But then actually being able to apply it in a piece of hardware and have software working. Yeah, I totally agree. The thing too that bothers me about ARM is sometimes they have little blobs in there that are not open source. It does exist in x86 as well, but I think it's more prominent when you have a system on chip system like with ARM. But there's some portion of the ARM CPU that's used on Raspberry Pi for the graphics piece that's not completely open source. There's some issues with drivers and such where you have to get a specific driver, which is paints the kernel. And you don't have that with AMD. You don't have that with Intel either, if I remember correctly. But it's just one of those things that does kind of concern me about ARM in general. The allowance for plugging in pieces that maybe can't be utilized with general applications, you know, open source software. And so my concern about ARM, in a way, it's lack of openness. I'm sure I'm going to be taking somebody off or something to be screaming at the radio, uh, the radio, screaming at the podcast player. I don't know what I'm talking about. But just my experiences, my issues with ARM have been where there have been little blobs that I have to download patches to that patch is not the right word but to be able to utilize them appropriately yeah but on the same note you are starting to see more and more of that creep into things like x86 with like the intel management engine and all the other kind of stuff even on amd side which in fairness amd at least they're a little more open with that kind of stuff so we're seeing those kind of blobs crop up on the other end of the more open side of the spectrum too Uh, really the only one that is fully, you know, open source friendly kind of deal would be a RISC-V, 
which the entails the old things like the MIPS architecture and other obviously ways of doing that. But there's been a few RISC V stuff that's been coming out recently. Wasn't there a laptop not that long ago that came out based on RISC V? I believe there was. I do recall something like that. But the problem with the RISC V stuff right now, it's not just scalability just because it's fairly scalability as far as being able to be built ready to ship process is the way I'm trying to say it. It's not as mass manufactured as something like a Snapdragon or a, you know a MediaTek or any of those kind. It's still in its growing phases, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, for sure. It's still in the, in the growth phases as well. There are some RISC-V open source, at least partially open source hardware out there. Uh, there's a mini ITX motherboard that features the Sci-5 I don't know what, FU740 processor, and that's probably a processor for you, Matt. A couple of eight gigabytes of DDR4 memory. There are things out there. It has 16x PCIe expansion slots too. So there are things out there for RISC-V, but it's not really mainstream at this point. I don't think there is enough really built against it to make it really a useful platform right now. It would definitely have its usages in particular areas of computing. My understanding is it's very low power, so it would actually beat ARM in some certain functions. And from this news article that I just pulled up, this was dated July 3rd of this year. So really not that long ago, about a month ago, saying that the first RISC-V laptop has gone into pre-order. It was a very small batch, only 100 units, kind of a test the waters kind of pre-order. I'm sure they weren't cheap. I am kind of interested to do a little bit more diving in to see how much they were costing Quad-core processor, 16 gigs of DDR4 RAM, up to 256 gigs of storage. So overall, this really isn't looking like a bad little machine. And it said that it also supports most Linux operating systems. So that might be one that for the most part, depending on what other hardware that they chose for this, it would be an out-of-the-box good experience with most of your Linux distributions. It also talks about it being able to have four included cores and some GPU 3D, 2D AI acceleration. So I don't know that it would necessarily be a video editing machine, but I think it would get the average stuff done for people wanting to use it. I would be curious to play with one to see the difference between an Intel laptop that I have because I've never had an AMD laptop at least an AMD in recent years where the quality has increased. I have had cheaper AMD laptops and we all know how well they used to work. Yes, we do. There's been a big upgrade in AMD <laughs> the last few years. But I'd be curious to take a decent AMD, a decent Intel CPU side by side with this RISC-V processor that they're putting out there in this laptop and comparing different workflows and how fast things get done or if there's any bottlenecks in there. Not necessarily from the hardware, but on the software side of things. I think with things like the OpenSUSE build service, they have builders for RISC-V, I believe, or if they don't, then they will, or it's, it's in process anyway. Projects like the Open Build Service, I'm sure Fedora has something similar, then building software, open source software for RISC-V will be great. Getting third-party vendors to build closed source software for RISC-V, I think is going to be the stumbling block, the big challenge for other vendors. 
And I think that's going to be the biggest hangup for Risk V. Until there's a compelling reason to utilize Risk V with enough systems out there using anything commercial or even games, probably not going to be likely for a while. Oh, you mean like a motivating reason like NVIDIA trying to buy ARM? <laughs> There's that. So big shifts like that will definitely, um, I know that whole deal fell through, but that will usually make an industry look and go, huh, they can buy an entire architecture. So things like Snapdragon or Qualcomm and MediaTek, which rely on licensing the varying schematical architectures from ARM are going to be reliant on NVIDIA. Yeah, not a contradiction of business at all. I could see them looking to other areas if that does become the case, though. If, uh, say, like the ARM brand in and of itself gets bought out by somebody, I could see those bigger players and be like, ah, we're going to go this direction now. Well, NVIDIA is not really known for its openness, so I don't think that helps the case of an open ARM platform. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not saying open ARM. I'm saying what I'm saying is that would drive people like MediaTek and Qualcomm to look at RISC-V over sticking with ARM. Yeah, that would make sense. I personally get worried about buyouts and such. Right. A lot of historical tech buyouts haven't been good for the tech industry in general, I think. Mm -hmm. I guess this one could be different, right? It could be. It could be. <laughs> Not every buyout has been bad. Red Hat seems to have kept its company culture with its buyout. People that I've talked to from Red Hat, they were there before and after, seem to still like working for the company after they've been bought out. So it's not always a bad thing. There can be positives, but it's dealing with that unknown. Just like AMD can take a sharp turn for the worse once again, the reason why they become such a powerhouse has a lot to do with Lisa Su and her leadership of the company and her working with the engineers directly and knowing what the consumer wants. So at any time, any of these companies could have a new, a new CEO, new leadership take over, which is then detrimental to the open source community, detrimental to us being able to use our hardware the way we want to, just with decisions that they make up above. Yeah, right now, for sure, AMD has some great leadership. It does feel like something has changed in Intel that they're doing some pretty great things too. And I do think competition is always good for actually everybody. So hopefully we'll see some great things come out of that. I think ARM has been good for Intel as well because of some of the changes they've been making themselves as far as more efficient CPUs that they're not manufacturing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to see how CPUs are doing their best to reduce power and GPUs are like, oh, hold on. We will take all of that power savings and require more. Yes, this is true. I have GPUs now that are in the hundreds of watts just to run. Mm -hmm. I have to say the area that I'm most impressed, like with any device that I have, and I know I'm, I'm probably going to sound like a broken record here, but what AMD has done with their APUs and how well that works on the Steam Deck, which is a pretty low power device, really. What AMD is doing right now is giving ARM a run for its money. And that's probably the best way that we are actually going to get ARM usable in multiple devices with consistency is if we have these larger other CPU manufacturers and saying, okay, you can make low powered CPUs, we can too, and we can do it in ways that is easier for the hardware manufacturers to utilize. So hopefully things like the Steam Deck will put pressure on AMD and Intel to create more powerful, low power or low power consumption 
CPUs, APUs, whatever you want to call them, for the masses. That might push ARM to standardize things more. That's kind of how I feel. If the x86 platform can become more power efficient with whatever special herbs and spices that are required to do so, and ARM can clean up some of the lack of consistency, I think having two platforms that are well-developed there can only be good for the consumer. And then we have uh, RISC-V coming here doing whatever RISC-V is going to do. You know, something else, a place to experiment. Who knows? I guess we'll see where that goes. But the real question is, what processor do you guys listening and watching on YouTube here think is going to be the future for Linux and just kind of computing in general? Is it going to be, you know, x86, AMD, Intel? Is it going to be ARM and its various iterations? Or is it going to be RS5? Or is it going to be something that we have totally overlooked, which is highly plausible? Let us know down in the comments below and, you know, we'll have a conversation. Nate, you do realize you have become a bigger fanboy for the Steam Deck than the guy that plays the video games, right? Listen, Matt, it's a new <laughs> shiny. I like it. It's fun. New shiny usually goes away after about two weeks. Okay, we're going on two months and it's still new and shiny, okay? I've only dropped it once and it landed on my foot. Exactly my point. Nate would rather break his foot than break the Steam Deck. <laughs> yes, I would. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com TUX to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. So for anybody who hasn't noticed, Nate has been singing the praises of how much he loves being an Arch user. So Dave, <laughs> what, what are you praising the use of being an Arch user for this time now on your Arch powered Linux computer? So what the topic actually is, is this device <laughs> called the GB Operator. <laughs> and the Steam Deck is ancillary to that. I haven't even tried it on the Steam Deck yet. Totally, I've been playing with it on my OpenSUSE Tumbleweed laptop because it's just easier that way. But the device that I'm talking about is called a GB Operator. Now what this thing is, that's very cool. It's by a company called Epilogue, so epilogue.co. It is a USB device has an USB-C connector on it, that you plug in a Game Boy or Game Boy Advance cartridge into. And then using the application by Epilogue, the app image, you can then run the game directly off the cartridge, but play it on your Linux machine. And they have Mac and Windows too, but you know, only one of those sounds really cool. What's neat about this is it's a really nice interface for one. You pop the thing in, it'll actually recognize the cartridge if it's an official cartridge. It'll say what it is, you can launch the game, play the game off the cartridge, save your game and everything, 
like you would on actual hardware. But what makes it even more cool is that you can go into the cartridge itself, you can back up the contents of the cartridge, and that can be the game itself and your save data. Let's say you have one of those cartridges that have a backup battery inside of it, and you need to change the battery because it's failing or getting old. You can back up the data off the cartridge of the save data, change out the battery, and then put the save data back onto the cartridge itself, which I think is very cool. Here's an idea. Let's say you've been playing a game on the cartridge for quite some time, and you want to then play it on your Steam Deck. You could very easily back up the contents of the cartridge, the save data, and continue to play it on the Steam Deck with all your same save data. So I think that's a very cool little device. It kind of takes the fun of the retro without losing anything and just adds to it more functionality and more flexibility, more freedom really to your old hardware for pretty much anybody to use. It's not an expensive device. I think I spent what, like 40 bucks for it or something like that. I have to, let me check here. Okay, it was $50 plus shipping. Still worth it. Got a nice case that it's in. I'm pretty excited about it. I've only had the time to use it just a little bit because I'm kind of busy, but rest assured in time, I will be able to play with this a little bit more. I mean, the idea is if you, you know, develop some homebrew software for the Game Boy or Game Boy Advance, you could then very easily compile it and then put on a, like a rewritable cartridge and then play it on your uh, hardware. It continues to, what I think, prolong or make more accessible the old gaming systems and, and also you know, merging it with the new. And what I think would be very cool, this is just me kind of like, you know, dreaming here. Yeah, maybe I'll buy another one of these so I don't disturb the original, but I would love to design a little snap-on thing so I could actually pop the cartridge into my Steam Deck and play the game like it was an old console. I think that'd be really cool. It's a very interesting twist of new and old. All the advantages of getting to play the old games you love with none of the disadvantages of you having to start from the beginning over and over and over again, which the best part about that is you've got five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you want to play a little bit, get a little bit further along, you can actually do that instead of spending a few hours beating the game in one sitting. I like the idea of this. I really don't know how many of these older cartridges we have laying around. Like I said, we do have some from a Sega Master System. We do have some older cartridges from the Atari. But it would be kind of cool, like, picking one of these up and then finding some of these old games at pawn shops, garage sales, different things, and you're like, oh, yeah, we can play these again now. Well, at this time, this is only for the Game Boy and Game Boy Advance, but things like this, I think there's ambition to continue to expand upon that as far as systems go. Yeah, being able to plug in some of those old cartridges into your system, your modern system, I think is just a cool proposition. Unites the eras together. Nate trying to merge the retro with the current, of course. With a Steam Deck, which is running Steam OS, not Arch. <laughs> with a Steam Deck, which is running Arch. It's okay. You can admit it. I refuse to admit it, though. Oh, I know you will. I'm still going to give you a ration of crap the entire time. <laughs> Wendy, you're doing a little less playing right now, and you're working on your Python skills again. How is that coming along? It's not going all of that great. I had so much of this stuff worked <laughs> out by the end of the school year last year. And then the crazy summer meant that I wasn't really able to play the way I wanted to. If you did go ahead and listen to that episode of Hardware Addict 66, you know that I spent an entire day 
yesterday for me. So that'd be August 10, building a robot. I didn't realize how much time I had spent on this till my lower back started hurting. And I'm like, why does my lower back hurt? Oh, because you've been hunched over Legos all flipping day. So I've got this robot built. I wanted to play with robot design and now it is making this robot work once again. So I am using MicroPython, the one that is directly on the hub for the Spike Prime robot. And I'm just having to relearn things that, like I said, I'd already worked out. Like which code do I need to do right now? Something super simple, simple is going forward, but the gushing thing won't back up, but the code looks good. So I don't know where I've gone wrong with that particular line, but it's not working. It is going forward and then it is shutting down the program. It's skipping that go backwards and it's going back to the bottom line, but it's not throwing an error code. I don't know, gotta figure out where I have currently messed up this robot, but I need to do it fast because as I mentioned before, Lego League season is kicking off. We'll be meeting at least once or twice over the course of the month of August. We are only going to have eight kids on our older team this year, which is kind of nice. We had 10 last year. We do want to keep it even because we have teams that are more interested in coding and more teams that are more interested in the engineering side and we kind of take the strengths and weaknesses of each individual person and use those to help build as strong of a team as we can. And right now, my biggest job is going to be helping the kids with the programming side. So that's what I'm going to be doing in all of my spare time leading up to the beginning of the school year and after that. The advantage is Yay, we've got our own robot, so I don't have to mess with the one that the team builds, though whatever robot they decide to build is the one we'll probably be using here at home because that way I have an almost one-to-one -one comparison. The downside is not all motors will work exactly the same. Like the one I've got right now, I've noticed that when it's going forward, it drifts a little bit to the side. We have one motor that's moving a little bit more faster or it's coming on with a little bit more power. So you're always gonna have to compensate for that inside the code when you're playing your robot game. And now I'm diving wholeheartedly back into how do I do these things so that when we get to the short time that we've got with the kids every week, it's easier for me to show them the code that I've got and walk them through this is how I made it work. And now these are the different things you can try to make it work. Because ultimately I can't touch their robot and I can't code their robot. I can just guide them through resources and the kids do it all. Right, it's probably best to know like how to do stuff so you can guide them appropriately, I imagine. Exactly. Don't let them go down the wrong bunny trail for too long. Otherwise I can generate some frustration. Right, exactly. And I want to make the best use of our time. Like I said, we really don't get that much time every week in order to work on these things. And I don't want them to ask a question and me spending all of their time trying to work it out. I would prefer that either I knew how to do it or I knew the resources to go to make it work so that that time we are together, the most progress can be done. How do you think this year is going to go as a comparison to last year? Do you feel like you're going to have a lot better time this year because of your added experience and so forth? I think that'll definitely make a difference. We also didn't meet for the first time until September. So we're meeting earlier, which is an advantage. Every school that starts in August, so 
whenever school starts and their classes start or their club starts meeting, since all of the information for the year dropped, we can be working on our robot game right now. And the more time you have to look at the board, to start designing your robot, to start designing attachments in order to do the different projects makes it easier. One of the downsides about last year's robot game is really those tasks were all over the board. And this year we have, I am so excited for the robot game this year. Instead of one home, there's a home on either side of the board. So instead of just having two kids at the mat at once, we can have up to four kids, two kids at each home station. So we can literally send the robot to do tasks from one side of the board all the way over to the other, have them start the next program and send it back. I think time-wise, that's going to be a huge saving. A lot of the tasks are kind of in a straight line down the board. It's going to be really cool to see what the kids come up with. I can't wait to have the parts in hand and start actually working with this. But between some of the fun tweaks for the robot game this year and on top of that, this being our second year as a team, I think some of that will be a little bit easier, go a little bit faster because the majority, well, all but one of the kids will be a return from last year. I'll actually have two kids in our FFL team this year. Both of my middle two are participating. It's going to be a lot of fun. And my daughter right now that it is joining the team, she's getting to help kind of play with our robot right now. She heard some of the stuff that we talked about last year because her brother was involved in the team. Now she's old enough to join. She's all gung-ho. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to see how the new person on the team, how they integrate and how fast they grow and so forth. I'm hoping for a continued update on robotics team of yours. You'll definitely be getting a lot of updates over the course of the school year. The thing I'm dealing with right now is I do have the mat like I talked about from last year's game and all of the missions that go on it. I just don't have a place to put it like I forgot how big that mat is and it won't even fit like on my kitchen table plus the downside of the kitchen table is if you program it wrong you really don't want your robot driving off the edge so i need to figure out a place <laughs> where i can get this mat down that we can get all the attachments on it and be able to leave it there so we can do some awesome robot coding at home not just when we're with the team toys for mom i mean for the kids. Maybe Magneto's got a well together a special location for you. Yeah, maybe. But sheet metal is flipping expensive. Like it would cost a ton for him to build me a metal stand <laughs> right now. I'll have to look at the size of the map. And I know there are some instructions to build a foldable table, which that might be the route we go and need to get the supplies and build one. Not only would that be an amazing advantage for home because we can put it up and take it down, but... It would be so much nicer for our meetings to use a table like that because the one that we have that's made out of wood, that sucker is really, really heavy and you need at least two people to get it up because not only is it heavy, it's incredibly long. So just one person by themselves can't manipulate it and get it up on a table without breaking the table. And one of the ones made out of foam that folds down, one person could go in, get it pulled up, set up if they're there early, get the mat down. So when the kids get in, we're not focused on setup. We're just focused on what are we working on today? What are the projects we're doing? What were the issues we had last week? And 
how did we get them solved? I think it sounds really exciting. And I'd like to do something similar here. I know there's a Lego league somewhere around here. I just haven't cracked that code yet. It does exist. I just got to find the right people. Let's go from work into play. Take us to game of the week. What do you got for us, Matt? This is a rated M game. So I just want to put that out because, you know, shock surprise. This game is Far Cry Primal. This is part of the Far Cry series, but is a different take. The Far Cry games are very much known for their guns and exploration and that, you know, open world kind of stuff. So free to explore, as you will. Not really known for story and kind of trying different things. Very formulaic and how it approaches stuff. This particular one, takes place i believe it's like 10,000 bc kind of setting where you're hunting woolly mammoths you're fighting saber-toothed tigers and they went so far as to invent their own language for the story aspect of this game there's a lot of hunting and gathering stuff obviously given the time frame of prehistory as it were it's a very unique game in compared to what ubisoft normally does Really graphically looks good even now. I mean, I think this came back out in 2016, if I remember correctly, give or take. I could be off on the time frame. The single player does have a actually pretty story focus on it, which is what I prefer. Uh, nice world building to it. It's just, and the mechanics are solid for what it is. You expect a lot of melee combat kind of stuff. You know, you have bows and you have other things like javelins that you throw. But really fun game. Definitely one I would recommend getting. And you can usually get it on sale. Last time I saw it on sale was like 750 or something on one of the Steam sales. So uh, it's about 30 hours, give or take, if you're kind of that completionist. But if you're just looking for the story, it's about 20, I'd say, probably. I question whether or not cavemen would have the ability to make bow and arrow. I, mean, I can see the spears and so forth, but uh, I don't know. It seems like there's a <laughs> bit of a mixture of era on this. And certainly this is not a game for me, I don't think. It's a video game, Nate. It's a video game. <laughs> I'm just saying, I don't think that this is maybe some historical inaccuracies. Oh, please. Anything too modern for you. 2016 is too modern for me. That's correct. 2016 didn't happen for you, Nate. Yeah, we're still living in like 2003, I think. I think that's as modern as I get right now. Yeah, PS2. Yeah, you'd be about accurate. 2006. <laughs> I want to say 2006, actually. I changed that because the Lego Star Wars games. <laughs> <laughs> that you play on your art system. TeamOS, but okay. I don't know, like when watching the preview thing on this Far Cry, I can always smell it. It just seems kind of gross. <laughs> the thing I like about it, it has a atmosphere that to me, it just kind of works for what it is though. If you, anybody's ever played any of the Far Cry games, it's different. It's Ubisoft actually stepping out of, hey, here's our annual serialized game that it's just kind of like a revamp of a sports game every year kind of deal. So for me, that's a lot of why I like this game personally. That makes total sense. I can see why you'd like this game. You're kind of twisted. <laughs> I mean, I'm a co-host with you on here. So yeah, I am a little twisted to still be here. That's true. When you put it in perspective like <laughs> hey, that. Hey, what does that mean? I said him, not you, Wendy. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I only throw shade at Nate, Ryan, and Michael. Not you and Jill. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't discriminate like Matt. I'm equal opportunity when it comes to throwing shade. Yeah, me too. And actually, <laughs> the more I like you, typically the more shade that gets thrown your way. Right. Well, if, if that were the criteria, then there's no one I like more than Matt. <laughs> the graphics in this are really nice, especially considering this came out in 16. I guess that's still not that old. Now, you guys did bring up the PlayStation 
name while you were doing this, and I'm going to take us off topic just a little bit. This last weekend, we watched Uncharted for the first time, so I don't want to give any spoilers, but I did not realize that Uncharted was based on a very popular game series from the PlayStation, and I saw Sony pop up, PlayStation pop up, and then there was a little Easter egg inside the game, so I went digging to try and figure out what it was because I didn't understand it, but I knew it was meant for somebody. Like, this was added to the movie for a very particular reason. After that, I found out that it was a game. It's an adventure game. It's a puzzle style game. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I would love to go play it. And right now you can only find it on PlayStation, which is a huge bummer. Well, Wendy, let me upsell you a game. (laughs) Okay. I believe it's the Uncharted Collection, if I remember correctly, is actually coming to PC. I did see that on Steam. It just doesn't have a launch date yet. Do you have any idea when that's dropping? They were expecting sometime, I would assume, given how they do games, you can probably expect it more towards Christmas time. Okay. That October kind of end of the year stuff. End of the year, last quarter of the year. Yeah, Sony does these weird things like when they're PC stuff, they'll drop it in like the last like six weeks of the year. Um, so that that between October and end of December. That collection does have a... I think it's four games, if I remember correctly. Four or five, something along that, yeah. Yeah, it's a B-movie, action movie, kind of tongue-in-cheek, very Indiana Jones with some of the stuff. Some of the later games, not so much, a little more serious. But overall, there does tend to be a lighthearted nature that runs through those games. They're definitely fun. I, I can't say that. The first one's a little rough after you've played like two or three and kind of some of the other games in the series, though. <laughs> I pulled up a thing on the rating of all of the games, and it sounds like the biggest favorite was the second one in the series for the big fans of the game. Yeah, two was like the, oh, okay, because it started out as just kind of a bullet spongy um, action game, you know, with like an archaeology kind of lean, like a heavy oriented action-oriented Indiana Jones. It's kind of right. the template. The second one ramped up the action, but more in a movie kind of way. So the quality was just different and the storytelling was different. It kind of transcended that, oh, it's a video game of, oh, it's a movie I'm playing kind of thing. Yeah, well, I definitely enjoyed the movie. And so it's got me intrigued in the games. I don't know... If I like the gameplay or not, before I buy them, this is probably one of the advantage of YouTube and Twitch, I can go watch some of the gameplay and be like, yes, this is something that will actually work for me, or no, never mind. Which is another advantage of GameSphere that you have. You can go see some of the gameplay of a lot of these games that you recommended, and people have a better idea of whether or not this is a game they actually want to pick up for themselves. That is very, very true. And the best part about GameSphere is that you can harass Matt live in real time, which makes GameSphere that much better. Which you can generically do, this past week being the exception for obvious reasons, is at 9 p.m. Eastern every Monday. You need to stop being sick so that you don't interrupt any more of these game streams. Maybe I just secretly didn't want to have to deal with you, Nate. No, that's not a secret. Yeah, you don't hide that at all. You're right. I don't do subtle when it comes to dealing with Nate. (laughs) I would never troll Nate. What are you talking about? Just like I would never troll Matt. 
Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topic. Take the discourse forums, drop us a line under this video, or use the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media platforms, you can look at the bottom of the show description and find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and, you know, some shows that Nate might show up on at tuxdigital.com. <laughs> I show up on a lot of them. Show off your love for your favorite podcast and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store and grab yourself some awesome swag with the gamer-centric I pause my game to be here shirt or the one that shows Wendy's true nature, which is hashtag Team Wendy for some sinister Wendy swag. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banner friendly, conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. No additional banter at the end of this one, huh? You're all good? Nah, nah, we're being good. Right. Right.